welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we are going to be looking at the case of trustees of the Barry Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses and BXB. The citation for this case is 2023 UKSC 15. And the case that we are covering this week includes sensitive discussion of rape and sexual assault in the context of a religious organisation. So if that's not something that you want to hear about, then I would invite you to turn this podcast off now. Otherwise, our story begins way back in 1984, when a couple referred to throughout as Mr. and Mrs. B began attending services at the Barry Congregation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It was there that they became friends with another couple, Mark and Mary Sewell. The four of them would often visit each other's houses and even go on days out and holidays with each other. Problems began in late 1989 when Mark Sewell's behaviour began to change. He drank a lot and started to appear depressed. As part of this change of behaviour, he also began to flirt with Mrs B by doing things like hugging her, holding her hand and trying to kiss her. Naturally, Mrs B was concerned about this and so she decided to speak with Sewell's father, Tony, who, like his son, was also an elder at the church. Tony did concede that his son was suffering from depression and that he needed love and support. At trial, it was held that this was important because if Mrs B had not received that advice and had Tony and Mark not been elders in the church, she would have ended their friendship right there and then. Instead, the couple continued to provide Sewell with support, even though he at one point asked Mrs B to run away with him. Things came to a head in 1990 when the two couples were taking part in door-to-door evangelising. Once they were done, they all went to a local pub for lunch, but the Sewells got into an argument. Later on that same day, they went to the Sewell family home, but Mark retreated into a back room. Mary asked Mrs B if she could go and talk to him about his depression, and specifically about seeking support from the elders in the church. Mrs B agreed, but during that conversation, Mark Sewell pushed Mrs B to the floor and pinned her down while he raped her. It was only in 2014 that Sewell was convicted of the rape, as well as seven other accounts of indecently assaulting two other individuals. He was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment. By that point, Sewell had been expelled as a Jehovah's Witness, and Mrs B had withdrawn from the church herself. Nevertheless, Mrs B brought the current proceedings for damages for personal injury, including psychiatric injury, against the trustees of the Barry Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, arguing that they were vicariously liable for the rape. At trial, the judge found in her favour, and that decision was upheld in the Court of Appeal. The Jehovah's Witnesses appealed to the Supreme Court, and that is where we pick things up. Now, If you were to explain vicarious liability to the average person on the street, then they would probably be quite surprised at the way the law operates. After all, it allows a person or company to be held liable for the acts of someone else. On the surface, that doesn't seem fair. It makes more sense if you consider any of the classic cases, like, for example, Smith and North Metropolitan Tramways. In that old case from 1891, a tram conductor pushed a passenger off the vehicle for not paying the fare. Of course, the tram conductor could be held liable, but that would limit the amount of compensation available. 
Instead, the law works so that it is possible to sue the tram company because the conductor was effectively acting as a representative of that company at the time. There is a two-part test for establishing vicarious liability, and so that was the exercise that the justices also undertook in these proceedings. The first stage looks at the relationship between the defendant and the person who actually committed the tort. In this case, that would be Mark Sewell and the trustees of the Barry Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, although the Supreme Court considered that the correct defendant was actually the other appellant in this case, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania, as that is the main legal entity of the Jehovah's Witnesses across the globe. Either way, the question is whether the relationship between Sewell and the church was one of employment or akin to employment. The idea of a position being akin to employment is important in this case because Sewell didn't work for the church in a traditional sense. Instead, the court has to consider the features of the relationship that are either similar or distinct to a contract of employment. Ultimately, the court decided that Mark Sewell being an elder of the church was akin to employment for a number of reasons. Firstly, he was carrying out work on behalf of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Secondly, he was carrying out duties that were in furtherance of that organisation's aims and objectives. Thirdly, there was an appointments process to be made an elder in the same way that you might have a job posting and then a hiring process. And finally, being an elder fitted into a broader hierarchical structure that you might see in any company. The second part of the test asks whether the wrongful conduct was so closely connected with the acts that the tort visa was authorised to do, that it can be fairly and properly said that the conduct occurred in the course of employment. Here, the justices were not convinced by the arguments put forward by Mrs B. For a start, the rape was not committed while Sewell was carrying out activities as an elder. Secondly, the reason that the offence took place was because Sewell was abusing his position as a friend of Mrs B. Thirdly, it was not reasonable to suggest that Sewell simply never took off his metaphorical uniform as an elder of the church. Fourthly, even though Sewell and Mrs B only continued to be friends because he was an elder, that alone does not satisfy the close connection test. Number five, the rape was a one-off attack and not a progression from other conduct. And finally, the role played by Sewell's father and other Jehovah's Witnesses is only relevant as background. Because of this failure to satisfy the second leg of the test, the appeal was allowed and the church was found not to be vicariously liable. It is interesting that the judgment in this case begins with the admission from Lord Burroughs that vicarious liability has seen an expansive redrawing of the boundaries during the 21st century. I think that this is a polite way of saying that this is far from settled law and it could be a while before we get to that position. To really understand these changes in the law, you have to look at two other cases. Firstly, in 2016, there was the decision of Muhammad and W.M. Morrison Supermarkets PLC. This expanded the second leg of the test, as Lord Tolson said the question was, quote, whether there was sufficient connection between the position in which he was employed and his wrongful conduct to make it right for the employer to be held liable under the principle of social justice 
which goes back to Holt, Chief Justice. End quote. The Supreme Court then tried to pull back a bit from that in 2020 via the case of W.M. Morrison Supermarkets PLC and various claimants. There, it was emphasised that the conduct must be, quote, fairly and properly be regarded as done by the employee while acting in the ordinary course of his employment, end quote. Lord Reid noted that this concept of fairly and properly is not based on a judge's natural sense of justice, but rather comes from looking at the factors and principles in previous decisions. That certainly limited the scope of vicarious liability, and I think that this case today will do something similar. While the lower courts examined the case in the light of the previous decisions, the Supreme Court alleged that they did not set out the correct close connection test and took into account incorrect factors. I don't think that is either fair or true. It is right to note that this is not settled law, so the lower courts may have had to make some decisions that don't align with other interpretations of the same precedents. But that is not the same thing as using the wrong test altogether. Instead, I think that what has happened is that the lower courts have correctly applied the existing law, but the justices of the Supreme Court feel that this is still far too wide for their liking, and so have used this case as a way to narrow down vicarious liability even further. Whether or not that is the right thing to do is a different question, but for me, I think that this is a regression from what was originally envisaged back in 2016, and means that the law now struggles to properly facilitate justice, as we see as the case with Mrs B. It is true that the religious component of this case makes it more difficult to determine things like when Sewell was and was not acting as an elder of the church, but that just means that the courts should be more expansive in their understanding rather than less so. None of the reasons given by Lord Burroughs really sound convincing if you consider the context of the case. Sure, Sewell was not exactly in the church or specifically acting as an elder at the time of his attack, but this is a relationship that exists because of the Jehovah's Witnesses and stems from a sense of trust that has been built up over many years at this point. The two couples had spent the morning evangelising, but it is not as if, as an elder, you simply clock off at lunchtime and then everything that you do exists outside of that context. Any basic understanding of religious community, especially those that are close-knit, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, would acknowledge that the relationships play a central role in everyday life, and that the trust Mrs. B placed in Sewell came from being a Jehovah's Witness. To put it bluntly, the rape is allowed to occur because of the faith that they share. It is easy to imagine that we will see more vicarious liability cases appear before the Supreme Court in the next five to ten years. The law is not settled and the Supreme Court has now demonstrated a clear intention to rein in the situations where a defendant is liable. This has the advantage of meaning that this area of tort law does not get out of control, but it also denies justice to people like Mrs B when they probably deserve it. Well thank you very much for joining in this podcast and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. A quick reminder before we go that if you would like to support the podcast and help to keep it ad-free, then you can subscribe to my newsletter and earn yourself some nice perks including more content from me each week and a free ebook on how to answer essay questions on a law degree. If that sounds like something you're interested in, then check out the link in the description to this podcast episode. 
Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week. But for now, bye!